Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. All right. Well, welcome, everybody, to today's Commonwealth Club meeting. My name is Scott Schaefer. I'm senior editor for politics and government at uh, KQED. I'm pleased to be your moderator for this program. Uh, Joining us today is U.S. Senator and Democratic presidential candidate Michael Bennett. Senator Bennett has represented Colorado in the U.S. Senate since 2009. Uh, Before then, he served as superintendent of public schools in Denver, where he worked to improve accessibility and quality of education in urban schools. He's also the author of a new book, a good one, I might add. It's called The Land of Flickering Lights, Restoring America in an Age of Broken Politics. Uh, We're going to talk about the book. It uh, uh, unfolds the backstory of some of the hyper-partisan conflicts in Congress today, calling Washington uh, out on its dysfunction. Senator Bennett said he's running for president of the United States to restore integrity into the government. We're excited to have him here with us. Please welcome Senator Michael Bennett to the Commonwealth Club. Thank you. Well, we are going to talk about the book, and I, uh, you know, obviously we want to talk about Congress and uh, the campaign, but you were born in uh, 1964 in New Delhi, India. That's true. Yeah. So, uh, as I that... say in the book, that it's not a very helpful origin story when you're running for Senate in the state of Colorado. But it worked, although it worked. you were appointed. But, yeah, <laughs> but how, tell us the circumstances. I was that. there uh, because my parents were there, a convenient <laughs> That makes sense. And um, they were working for our embassy there. There was a guy named Chester Bowles, who, as some of you may remember, our ambassador to India. And um, and they were um, there in service of, of JFK's view that the United States had an important role to play in trying to uh, make a difference in, in countries like India. Um, so that's why we were there. How long were you there? Like I was only there. I was there for 18 months. And okay. Then, yeah, came back. Didn't have a big impact on you then. For have you been back? I have been back. I have been back. It's nice to be there now because when I, I get introduced as the only senator in the history of America to be born in Holy Family Hospital in New Delhi, and that gives you a big round of applause <laughs> yeah. in India. And uh, we were chatting before we came out here that your mom uh, was born in Poland. My right. dad was born in Poland. Also, they, they fled, your, along with your grandparents, the Holocaust. How did those two family stories, do you think, affect the way you look at the world? Hugely. I mean, my, my mom and her parents were Polish Jews who survived the Holocaust. They didn't leave Poland because my grandfather didn't want to leave his family behind. And in the end, everybody was killed except the three of them and an aunt. Uh, they lived in Warsaw for a couple years after the war, and then they went to Stockholm, Sweden for a year, and then they went to Mexico City of all places, and then they got to New York, where my mom registered herself in school, and uh, she was the only one in the family that could speak any English, and they started their business again. But in the second grade, um, they asked us to line up in order of whose family had been in the country the longest and whose family had been in the country the shortest period of time. And I was the answer to both, both questions. questions. <laughs> uh, my dad's family uh, could trace its way all the way back um, to the Mayflower. And my mom's family was, you know, um, the, by far the one that was closest in time. And I think that's made a huge impact on me. I mean, it, my 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 grandparents were the most committed American citizens that I've ever known. They they were there was 
a great, great sadness um, that they felt about what had happened to them. But their sheer joy of being Americans was something I, could, I can't express. I mean, they were just so grateful to be part of this democracy and part of this pluralist society that we live in. And I would say they gave back as much as they got, but it was the way America is supposed to work. I'm curious, just because of your mom's side of the family history, uh, you know, what do you make of, of Trump's comments? Uh, I think it was this week, it might have been last week, you forget, things happen so quickly. But, you know, that if you vote, if Democrats who, 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 Jews who vote Democratic are disloyal to Israel. I mean, he knows what he's doing. He knows that that's a centuries-old trope about whether or not um, Jews are loyal to the country in which they live. And I think it's particularly um, uh, horrific in when it comes to our country because our country really is supposed to be, I mean, certainly my grandparents believe this about our country, supposed to be a place where um, we embrace pluralism and the sectarian strife, much of it religious, and this was very much in the minds of the founders when they were uh, writing the Constitution, uh, the sectarian strife that other nations have, have contended with for centuries isn't supposed to happen here. And you're not supposed to call out people's loyalties here. They're, we're all Americans. So he knows exactly what he's doing. You know, it's an amazing thing for a guy who apparently has never read a book, um, including the one that he wrote. Uh, <laughs> he does have this preternatural sense of, you know, the, the, uh, the reactionary autocrats playbook. And that's, you know, you, this is the kind of thing that you'd hear somebody in the right-wing government in Poland, say, you know, the place where your father and my mother came from. Uh, and the last thing we need to do is import that brand of politics here. Very unusual for an American president to acquire power by dividing the American people in the way that Donald Trump did. But that's exactly how he did it. And that's the playbook. That's how he's trying to hold on to power now. Does it surprise you? It surprises me sometimes that he has taken, made so little effort to reach out to really anybody that, that didn't vote for him. You know, it's really just about, yeah. I mean, he really rarely goes to states that he didn't win. Right. Uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it seems like it would be relatively easy to maybe just, you know, make those overtures. Now, now you know what it's like to live in a place like Turkey if Erdogan is your president, you know, who believes uh, that he owes nothing to anybody who didn't vote for him. And, and all he owes his allegiance to are the people of who voted for him, and Donald Trump sees it exactly the same way. By the way, my view is that um, if I'm fortunate enough to be elected president, my expectation is that I'm going to spend as much time in places where I will never win more than 30% of the vote than in the places that where I've won 70% of the vote, because I think it's a critical way for a president to begin to try to stitch this country back together again. It's sort of the opposite of the way that Trump has thought about it. Well, in fact, it sounds like you did a bit of that when you um, ran or after you got appointed senator. You went to the parts of Colorado that were not the deep blue parts right. to listen. Uh, it, it, what, what, what did you find out? I mean, because you didn't run for office. You were sort of that accidental senator, I think, as the Republicans called you. You were appointed by the governor when Ken Salazar, the senator, right. was appointed interior secretary. Yeah, the accidental center is what they called me uh, to hurt my feelings. But I had been an urban school superintendent for almost five years, so I had no feelings left. <laughs> they, they, they had been beaten out of me a long, long time ago 
they didn't know that. But it was an, but it was an accurate statement. It was very accidental. And I have spent um, my whole 10 years uh, in rural parts of Colorado and red parts of Colorado, partly because I'm on the Agriculture Committee, but really because I think it is my responsibility as a senator that represents a state that's a third Republican, a third Democratic, and a third Independent to represent everybody, whether they voted for me or not, whether they agree with me or not. And, um, and, and, and I feel obligated as a result of that to go to places where we have disagreements, like on the Affordable Care Act. While we were passing that, I was in the reddest parts of Colorado having town hall after town hall after town hall saying, this is why I'm voting for it. Not saying you should agree with me or not saying I hope you'll agree with me. But it's been absolutely fascinating. You know, it's funny because in some of those places where people think I'm going to be a Bolshevik or a socialist when I show up, at least that's what they're saying to themselves. At the end of the meetings, they often say, what are you reading? I'd like to know what you're reading. Um, and sometimes the meetings are better than, you know, when I go to Boulder, if I've disappointed Rachel Maddow that week, that is a very tough conversation <laughs> to have and sometimes even tougher than in the redder parts where they think I'm a socialist. So, uh, as you said, you were superintendent of schools in Denver when you were somewhat surprisingly, I think, appointed. Uh, there were some who figured the governor would appoint somebody who had run for office who could win an election. Imagine that. Yeah. <laughs> so what did you, I mean, you know, education, you, you know, schools teach civics and history and all these things. And then you end up in the U.S. Senate. Uh, how surprised were you by what you found there? I was shocked. I mean, I, and I was a close reader of the newspaper. There's another part of my origin story that's not great for politics. I actually grew up in Washington, D.C. My father had worked on Capitol Hill for years and in various Democratic administrations of one kind uh, or another. And um, so it, I think it's safe to say I actually knew more about the way our government worked than your average person does just because of that. And I was shocked at the level of dysfunction, of the level of pathology, and the number of sociopaths that occupy um, our national legislature. I really was. And I continue to be shocked about it to this day, and particularly in view of the fact that I came from the, the school district, you know, where we were literally fighting for the lives of the students that we had in the Denver Public Schools. I mean, this is what's at stake in a country where public education is reinforcing the economic inequality we have rather than liberating people from it. And we made a lot of changes in Denver, some good, some not as effective. But every single day, whether we were agreeing or disagreeing, people were actually trying to do what they could do for the kids, including the kids themselves. And I got to Washington, and people just waste each other's time. And when, that bi it's a bipartisan criticism. It is a bipartisan criticism. I mean, I, I particularly in the book, uh, haul off on the so-called Freedom Caucus and the Tea Party, who surfed into the, the, the Congress in 2010 and 2014, basically, and ever since then have immobilized our exercise in self-government. I mean, these guys have acted as tyrants uh, who believe they have a monopoly on wisdom and it's them. We have to rescue our government back from these people. We have, no matter who you are, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, if you believe in the exercise in self-government, we have to overcome these people. They are immune to compromise. They will not compromise. Um, and they need to be beaten. They need to be closed over. And it's going to be really hard work for us to do it. It's not just going to be one presidential election. And it's gotten a lot harder because of Fox News. 
Well, and, and the book makes it clear, I think, that uh, Trump is not the cause right. of all these things. In fact, um, you know, you, you describe five different episodes that you focus on, four of which are negative, one of which is more positive, the Gang of Eight, trying to work on an uh, immigration solution. But you describe D.C. as a place that is hyper-partisan, that people can't work across the aisle anymore. But is, the, is that message that you're you know, talking about on the campaign trail, is it, are people listening? Is that what Democrats want to hear? That we need, you know, we need to have more cooperation. Well, uh, no, not all Democrats want to hear that. Uh, I, I really believe strongly that we can't accept Mitch McConnell and the Freedom Caucus's diminished view of our institutions and what this purpose of self-government again is. Um, we could accept it, and there are Democrats in this race for president who do accept it, uh, but I think where it will lead us is a one-way ratchet down into complete dysfunction. I quote Thucydides in the book on this subject. You know, it's not like we haven't seen this movie before. When you go back to uh, what he was writing about what was happening at the end of the Roman Empire. It's the same kind of stuff that these guys went through. And, it, and it's a, he describes it as the parties losing such faith in their own capabilities that they had nothing left but to destroy each other. And that's, I think, kind of essentially where we are. And the reason I think this is so important, let me put it in terms, if you don't mind, that I think on the campaign trail, people say to me all the time, Michael, we need to act urgently on climate change. And I agree with that. We have to act urgently. We should ask ourselves how it is we have a climate denier in the White House, and we should ask ourselves what we're going to do to make sure that never happens again. It's important to ask ourselves that because that climate denier beat us. But I'm going to put that to one side. Maybe people are just talking more about that. But in addition to acting urgently, we also have to create a durable solution. You can't accept the way politics works in Washington and create a durable solution on climate because you can't fix climate two years at a time. You can't accept the politics where you put in a set of policies during four years of the Obama administration and the other guys come in and rip it out. And then four years later or two years later, you put it back in and they rip it out. I don't think that's any way to regulate a banking system or support education, but you certainly can't deal with climate that way. And that's why I think sort of as a definitional matter, you cannot accept the current political alignment in America. And we're going to have to build a coalition of Americans outside of Washington to overcome a broken Washington. That's what we're going to have to do. And that sounds really hard. Uh, and it is really hard. But there are no shortcuts in democracy. This is why the debate about do you get rid of the filibuster, don't get rid of the filibuster, not a particular interest to me because the real question is, can you win states like Colorado, Iowa, Arizona? Because if you can't, you're not going to be able to make the kinds of changes that we need to be able to make. The Democrats are putting forth a lot of ideas on climate change, and the one that's gotten the most attention, for better or worse, is the Green New Deal, or is... Nancy Pelosi calls it the Green New Dream, I think she calls it. Uh, not so much anymore. She's buried the hatchet with AOC a little bit. But, you know, what, what, scientists will say that the longer you wait, the tougher the solutions yeah, are going right. to be if you're going to deal with this. Right. Uh, so, like, where do you come down? Like, what, what, what should Congress be doing that is acceptable, that's doable? Well, first of all, uh, I believe that we should not ever compromise with the science. Ever. Ever. 
And and that's why I actually support the findings of the Green New Deal that say we've got to get to net zero carbon by 2050. And there are a bunch of other things in those findings that I agree with. But uh, I think another approach to the policy is going to be more likely to be successful for the reasons that I said earlier. If you come out to Colorado and have a conversation with people and say, my climate plan, by the way, we have to act urgently, and, by the, and, and my plan is that we're going to retrofit every building in America in the next 10 years, and we're going to give everybody a paid vacation, and we're going to give everybody a paid job, and Bernie Sanders' health care plan Pretty soon people are going to say, that doesn't sound like a climate plan to me. That sounds like something else. And by the way, one of the things that drives me nuts about that is the one thing they left off that list was a high-quality public school for every kid in America. Why are they always left behind? Why are they always left behind? They're invisible to us, the kids in these urban school districts. And they're invisible to the progressive left in this country. And... And so what I believe is that the tragedy of the last election, as I said a minute ago, is that we lost an election to a climate denier. It should be disqualifying for the White House if you deny that climate change is real. It should be disqualifying. It, it should be disqualifying on moral terms. But I mean something else. It should be disqualifying on political terms. Because the majority of Americans believe that climate change is real, and the majority of Americans believe we need to do something to fix it. And the argument we lost to Trump, which is a disgrace, we should never have lost it, was on economics. And he won an argument with the American people where he said, if we deal with climate change, it's going to be an economic catastrophe for America. When the reverse is true, of course, if we don't deal with climate, it will be an economic catastrophe for America. That is an argument we cannot lose again. So isn't it a failure, too, of, of Democrats to it come is. up with a message it is. that people it is. will resonate so with? So there's this agonizing description in the book about, you know, the Keystone Pipeline votes. And this is a this is a thing where, you know, I voted in a way that was not consistent with the environmental community's view, with whom I have a very, very strong relationship. We moved to Colorado because my wife was the regional director of, of Earth Justice. She was the Rocky Mountain region. Yeah, they do a great job. And I had to crawl into bed every night, so I need to be right on these issues. <laughs> But what's, what disturbed me about... How was it the night you voted for the Keystone Pipeline? It was fine because we had been through it. And what disturbed me about it was, you know, it galvanized our base, but it didn't bring anybody else to the table. And somebody else once said to me, well, what would Michael have said? Who gets to pick the symbols, the movement or the politicians? And I think that's a very legitimate question. And my answer is probably a little bit of both. And then the question from this friend of mine in, in Colorado who had, was very disappointed in me on this, but had agreed that, it was a, that Keystone was a symbol, not more than a symbol. What would Michael have said about the lunch counters in the civil rights movement? And this is all in the book, to which I said exactly that's my point. Because the civil rights, the, the, the lunch counters brought the North into the civil rights movement. It expanded the movement and built it in a way that could overcome people who thought they would never be able, they would never give up 
on segregation in this country. We need the same sort of relentlessness and approach on climate change. We got to be building a coalition of people to change politics in Washington, D.C. so that we have an urgent and durable solution. And I and I think I, I believe we can easily do that. I think the coalition is waiting for us in America to do it. But you can't just expect that it's going to be there and you can't make proposals that actually divide people when you're trying to unite people. And I want to end by just to be very clear about it. You cannot compromise on the science and we cannot compromise on the science. That is not the same thing as saying we shouldn't be opening to figure out how to build a durable coalition of people that can sustain a political outcome in this country. That's actually an honorable thing to do, I think, not a dishonorable thing to do. As you say in the book, uh, or I think you allude to this, but um, you know, you're talking about segregation, <clears throat> civil rights. I mean, the, some of the big civil rights bills that got passed in the mid-60s could never have happened without Republicans. Could support. never have happened. Um, and what has happened to the party, not just on civil rights, which is a little more understandable yeah. in some ways, but on science. Yeah, on, it's a good, on it's the perfect example. There's a chapter in the book called um, The Corruption of Inaction, which is about um, what, it's really about Citizens United, but the, the way I dis- describe the effect on our country is by using climate change. And I don't want to overstate it, but, but the Republicans actually had a fairly honorable in, environmental tradition. I mean, everybody knows of Teddy Roosevelt's honorable tradition, but, but imagine this. Richard Nixon signed into law the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act and stood up the EPA. Ronald Reagan closed the hole in the ozone layer. He was a skin cancer survivor uh, using a cap-and-trade system, basically. Two George Bushes went to the United Nations and said, we got to do something on climate. In fact, George Bush, the dad, went to Detroit, Michigan and said, um, uh, people that think we're not getting anything done on climate forget about the White House effect and we're going to get something done on climate. And my friend John McCain, who I was part of the Gang of Eight with on immigration, he ran on climate change. What happened? What happened was in 2010, the Supreme Court decided Citizens United. And that led to the Koch brothers and other billionaires, fossil fuel people, from having a completely outsized role in their politics, where um, they first set out just in that year, they set out to require every member of the Congress who's Republican to sign a climate pledge that said that they were going to you know, say that climate change was real and that humans weren't going to contribute to it. And so they went out and signed that pledge. And, uh, and then ever since then, uh, we've been living in a world where if a Republican in Washington looks like they're going to do something on climate, the Kochs just have to rattle the coins in their pockets because it is chump change for them and say, oh, really? Do you because we can put 30 mil- because of the Supreme Court, we can put 30 million dollars in your next primary and you're going to be dead before this even starts. And that has created this profound corruption of inaction in our country. The Supreme Court, in their opinion, which I used to describe as um, is like reading a seventh grader's American government paper. And then I decided that was insulting to America's seventh graders. So <laughs> I, don't say, I don't say that anymore. But the ignorance of that opinion where they were so focused on this idea of, of um, uh, 
a corruption of action. You give me $5,000, I go write a bill for you. Or you give me $5,000 and I go write a bill that has the appearance of being written for you. The court said both those things we, we have a right to worry about and we can limit contributions. So that's why you can only give me $5,000. But then they said, with independent expenditures, by definition, they're independent, so we don't have to worry about it. And that's why the Koch brothers could give a billion dollars and not even put their name on it and affect all of American elections. They said that this money in, their, in American politics will not cause, this is their language, will not cause the American people to lose faith in their democracy. 95% of the American people say there's too much money in our democracy and the billionaires control too much of it. And this is, this is one of the huge reasons why we are in the mess that we're in. It's not the only reason. It was a confluence of the rise of the Tea Party in reaction to the election of uh, Barack Obama. It was the uh, Koch brothers simultaneously being unleashed by the White House and the unbelievably corrosive effect, the particularly corrosive effect in that era of the partisan gerrymandering that happened in the House of Representatives. Those things coalesced together in a structural, uh, toxic stew that we're still living with. So when my friend Joe Biden says that if we just get rid of, and this goes to the question of Trump being a, a symptom, not a cause, says if we just get rid of Trump, it'll all somehow go back to normal, uh, ignores the structural issues that exist in the democracy that I lay out in my book. Uh, and, it, and many of those changes over the last 10 years and ignores the fact that the place is now populated by a bunch of Tea Party people and not by the kind of Republicans who were available to pass a civil rights bill. You were, and we should all care about this. This isn't a good thing for Democrats because, as you pointed out, to get, or as both of us have pointed out in different ways, to get real legislation on big issues that will endure over time in a pluralist society like ours, you need more than one functioning political party. You need at least two, and I would argue it wouldn't be a bad thing if we had more than that to be able to coalesce support so that it can last longer than elections. Coming into the 2020 primary, um, you were pretty tough on Joe Biden. Uh, I think it was in the first debate uh, where you really were critical of him and the role he played and the deal he accepted and negotiated around the budget and cementing the Bush tax cuts. Uh, I mean, and, and in the book, you reiterate that. Uh, well, in fairness to Joe, I wrote the book long before I saw him on the debate stage. I mean, so I, this was something I thought of not as a tactic in the yeah. campaign, but, but you feel the, strongly the book about it. is called The Land of Flickering Lights. And the reason it's called that is that every time we have one of these shutdowns in the middle of the night, I go to the floor and I say, this place has become the land of flickering lights where the standard of success is keeping the government open for another hour or two or month or two. In the time that I've been in the Senate for the last decade, 40% of the days that I've been there, we've been on continuing resolutions, which are temporary budgets that just extend the dead hand of the past into the future. The thing about the deal Joe cut with McConnell, um, that it was the fiscal cliff, you may remember it. It was a moment in time when the Bush tax cuts were all expiring 
and when the dreaded sequester was going to go into effect, which were the across-the-board cuts that had been written in such a way that nobody in their right mind would ever vote for such a thing, and so it was meant to force good behavior. And in the end, what was the deal was cut? It was a classic Washington, D.C. deal. Uh, Two o'clock in the morning, nobody had read it. We all voted on it. I was one of eight senators to vote against it, one of three Democrats to vote against it. It extended virtually all the Bush tax cuts forever. These, these things, we had run two campaigns against the Bush tax cuts, and they were temporary. This extended them forever, taking away the Democrats' central economic argument going into the 2016 election. And the other part of the deal was, if Congress doesn't come to an agreement, which of course we wouldn't, in the next 90 days, the sequester would go into effect, which it did, and it still is. So it was, I think, a home run for the Freedom Caucus and for Mitch McConnell and a, and a real defeat for Democrats So as at you, a moment. By the way, Barack Obama had just been reelected. So the alternative here was this was not a government shutdown. The alternative was for President Obama to say, look, if you won't do a deal, I'll, we'll just let these things expire. That's $4 trillion of taxes that... We could have then designed an Obama tax cut around that would have, you know, reduced childhood poverty by 40 percent. I have a proposal to do that that could have given the middle class in this country a real tax cut instead of the tip that they're given just to make it palatable to support tax cuts for the wealthiest people in America. That would have made a big difference. So Biden, as you know, is the front runner, although there are a lot of questions about how strong that support is. But what what is what you just described? What does that say about his ability to be president of the United States and his message that you need to work across the aisle, that he knows how well, to do that. Well, I believe, I want to be clear, I believe you need to work across the aisle. I believe I need to represent all those folks that I've mentioned before who are Republicans in the state of Colorado, many of whom are not voting for me. But I also believe we need to root out this Freedom Caucus and this particular group of people. How do you do that? that are, we have to beat them. And we have to take a message to America that closes over them. And it's hard to do that in an era when, you know, people are watching Fox News all day. But we can't have that be an excuse. We got to show up and say in red parts of the country, here's why I'm repealing Donald Trump's tax plan. Here's why I've got a plan for universal health care that makes sense. This is what we have to do on climate. It's why I've spent the last, you know, two years with farmers and ranchers all over Colorado on the issue of climate because I'm trying to build a broader coalition. So with him, what I'm more worried about is this idea that if you just get rid of Trump, it all goes back to normal when the normal before that was a broken government that was not working well on behalf of certainly the children that I used to work for in the Denver Public Schools and their families. And we have, there's no shortage of work for us to do in this country. I mean, we are in the fourth or the fifth now, the fifth decade of an economy that um, has left nine out of 10 Americans with no wage increase, where all the benefit of the economic growth has gone to the wealthiest people in the country. We've got the greatest income inequality that we've had since 1928. And as I said earlier, we've got an education system that's reinforcing the income inequality we have because the best predictor of the quality of your education is the income of your parents. There is not a shortage of stuff for us to do um, which is why we have to beat these guys. You, you talk a lot about income inequality in your book, uh, and others on the campaign trail are doing that as well. Um, and some, like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, your colleagues in the Senate, are calling on a big tax increase on the wealthy. I, you're running as more of a moderate Democrat. Do you think that that kind of a tax increase is, uh, is necessary? 
Well, I think Elizabeth's proposal is unconstitutional, so I don't, I don't think it would pass. I How think, so? I mean, Wait, well, because of the, it, it's for the reasons that we had to pass an income tax through the Constitution. If you want to have a wealth tax, you'd have to also pass it, pass it through the Constitution. You'd have to have a constitutional amendment. But there are things we certainly should do. I mean, we should repeal the Trump tax cut. We should take the top rate up to what it was before he did that. Instead of doing what Donald Trump is proposing, which is reducing the capital gains rate, we should take that up to the same uh, uh, in, uh, taxing rate that ordinary income is taxed at. That is, That actually in our tax code is the biggest differentiator between wealthy people and everybody else in the economy, and we should close that loophole. And I believe we should be taxing intergenerational transfers of wealth in this country. You know, this massive buildup of wealth that is being passed from generation to generation tax-free um, is that's preposterous. And we are living in a, a second gilded age. I really believe that. I think that's what that's where we are right now. And just as the progressive movement rose in the face of that gilded age, made the kind of constitutional amendments that were necessary to do, changed the tax code, busted the trust. We have a whole bunch of work just like that that we're going to have to do if we're going to unleash the productivity of the American people. There was no guarantee that we were going to have a, a, a 20th century that where we had broad growth in the middle class. I mean, you know, and it didn't happen by accident. It happened because the American people stood up and took action, and that's what we're going to have to do as well. Some audience questions here. Uh, if Democrats take control of the Senate, would you favor eliminating the filibuster? <laughs> so I'd say, first of all, what we should be t- focused on is taking, getting the majority. It's not going to be easy to do. In order to get the majority, we're talking about states like Iowa and Colorado and Arizona and Maine. We forget that part, you know, and we shouldn't be forgetting that part. I can assure you that Mitch McConnell doesn't forget that part. And until we do that. I'm not sure why we're having a debate about whether to change the filibuster, because guess what? There's only one person in America who has the ability to change the filibuster right now. And you know who that is? Mitch McConnell. And and he hears every single Democrat who says, oh, change the rule, change the rule, change the rule. And I guarantee you he's waiting to sustain a majority in the in the in the in the Senate and to have a majority in the House, at which point he will change the rule. And the fight that we're going to have on our hands is privatizing Social Security with 51 votes, taking away women's right to choose. Um, You you pick it. And so um, rather than make the most vulnerable Americans even more vulnerable to Mitch McConnell, my view is what we should be doing is going out and winning elections in this country because their record... Their record is so terrible. I mean, look at McConnell. He can't put he can't put a background check vote on the floor. It's not because he's putting the election protection legislation on the floor. That's not going anywhere either. And I don't think there's anybody in America who's alive who has put more debt on the balance sheet of this country than Mitch McConnell. And I I believe that that would be a really interesting message to carry into Kentucky in an election against Mitch McConnell. Did you, Kentucky, really mean to send somebody who's the biggest deficit buster that ever uh, got to Washington, D.C.? Do people really care about deficits? Well, we'll see. We'll see. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Politicians don't care about it. The people that really do care about it and they don't know they care about it yet are the next generation of Americans who are being completely stolen from by us. 
And it's a disgrace. You know, there's this argument goes around Washington. Deficits don't matter. Weird time to make it when you got a Republican president and a, and a Republican Senate and a Republican House uh, being, you know, uh, pursuing a set of policies that are so fiscally hi- hypocritical that we've never seen anything like that before. But but you can have an academic argument about whether they matter or not. The reality is we are piling debt on, on, on our children, and we are therefore constraining the choices they will make. And at the same time we're piling debt on them, we are investing in them far less than our parents and grandparents invested in us. We've cut domestic discretionary spending in America by 35% since Ronald Reagan was president. Our kids should be enraged at what we're doing to them. You want to know why? Kids have to spend 25 years of their life paying back college debt. It's because we have refused to make hard choices to support them in the way that our parents and grandparents did for us. And the easiest thing for politicians to do is say, just borrow the money. And that's what we're doing for, you know, nationally as well. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. Let me ask you about the process of running for president. Um, you're about maybe one. I may not be as good at it as somebody else. Well, but I'm happy wanna, to give you my I do want to ask you about that because uh, Seth Moulton dropped out today. Um, Jay Inslee, the governor of Washington, dropped out. Your friend John Hickenlooper has jumped out, uh, jumped out to run for the Senate, which makes a lot of people happy. But uh, I'm just wondering, I mean, you're at you're right now. They say on the bubble, you know, to be on the debate stage, uh, you have to get a certain number of donations and uh, a certain number of uh, you have to show up at two or three percent in the polls, I guess. Four, right. four, you know. yeah. So you're not there on either one right. of those, I think. Uh, so can you is it viable for you to run for president if yeah. you're not on the debate? I'm, I think it is. Uh, I think I, I just t- was at the DNC and took the opportunity to say how undemocratic I thought their rules were. I mean, the reality is. It's true. I said, you know what, if we wanted to narrow, uh, exclude people, we might as well just call ourselves Republicans, because that's what (laughs) that's what they spend their time doing. I mean, at this time in the race, when Bill Clinton was running, he was at one percent in the polls. John Kerry was at like four percent in the polls. Barack Obama was yet to be 30 points behind Hillary Clinton. He didn't he didn't have that distinction until the November before the Iowa caucus. These decisions are all made in the last month. Uh, in Iowa and in New Hampshire. And it's not ideal that I'm probably not going to be on the next debate stage, but I am going to stay in there because I don't think, I think if history is any guide at all, the leading candidates in this field will not be the people that are winning those early races, unless the DNC interferes in a way that takes the choice away from people that need to make the choice. And I think that would be a bad mistake. The country has no idea what the National Democratic Party stands for. No idea. And that's something we have to litigate through this process. And that's why we should invite it rather than be fearful about it. As someone who serves in the Senate, wouldn't you be pleased if some of them, like Steve Bullock from Montana, ran for the Senate or Beto O'Rourke ran for the Senate in Texas? I I am the last person in the world who should be giving advice to anybody (laughs) about that, including John Hickenlooper. But I I will say this. um, It is critical who's at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, and it's critical who's in your Senate. 
And it's not just for me about Democrats. It's about what is the standard that we want to hold our elected officials to. One of the conclusions, you know, if you can make it through the five chapters of, you know, despair, uh, the last 70 pages of the book are basically a love letter to our democracy through a bunch of Walt Whitman's poetry and... and you got a lot of Walt Whitman in there. There's a lot of Walt Whitman in there. And there's a lot of um, Frederick Douglass in there. His July 5th speech gave it on the 5th because the 4th of July was a slave trading day in the in the South. And the argument I basically finally made in the book is that the founders did two incredible things. They, they wrote, they, they led an armed insurrection against a colonial power that was successful, that had never happened before in human history. They wrote a constitution that was ratified by the people that would live under that constitution. That had never happened before in human history either. They did something horrific, which is they perpetuated human slavery. And we will be with that for all the days of our lives. But when you look at somebody like Frederick Douglass, born a slave in this country, comes north and meets with the abolitionist movement, and and the abolitionists are saying at the time, the Constitution was a pro-slavery document. Douglass says, no, you have it exactly wrong. The Constitution was an anti-slavery document. We're just not living up to the words of the Constitution. The same thing Martin Luther King said the day before he was assassinated in Memphis, which was, I'm just here to make sure that America keeps the promise that you wrote down on the page. And in my, when I think about that history, I think of Frederick Douglass every much a, as, as being a founder, every much, as a founder as much as the guys who wrote the Constitution, you know, because of his contribution, just like the people who fought for my daughters to have the right to vote, which were, you know, precluded. And that's what I believe about all of us, as it turns out. I think if you ask me what it is you're responsible for, how to think about what your role as a citizen is in a democratic republic, it is the role of a founder. You have to think of it as that elevated a sense of responsibility and as duty. And our um, expectations of the elected officials in Washington have to be similarly that high. And our expectations today are very low. And as a result... Um, we got a pe- bunch of people there that are feathering their own net political nest, but not actually doing the work the American people needs them to do. One of the compromises, of course, that the founders made was they created the Electoral College. Right. Um, and some candidates are talking about getting rid of that. Uh, is that just a waste of time? Because I just, it's so I difficult? think, we'll, we'll, I mean, I don't, I think it's certainly outlived its usefulness. That's how I view it. But I think we'll all be dead by the time um, that's addressed. So, yeah, it is kind of a waste of time. And I go back to my point. Let's win elections. Yeah. And let's put people in these offices that feel, you know, the need to be responsive to the American people rather than to the needs of special interests of the Cokes. We're here, of course, in California, where uh, 25 years ago now, there was a ballot measure, uh, Prop 187, uh, that was really the beginning of the end of the Republican Party in California because it demonized uh, immigrants, especially uh, immigrants who were here illegally. Uh, Now, uh, we've moved past that in California and to the point where people are strongly supportive of dreamers and uh, and paths to citizenship and so on. But throughout the country, uh, it's still very much an open question in terms of how it's framed. And how would you like to see whoever the Democratic nominee is frame this issue of immigration, especially, you know, when you include border security, levels of immigration, who should be in the country, uh, all those things? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I, 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 I... 
There certainly is racism in this country, and there certainly is prejudice in this country for all the reasons that um, I was just saying about slavery. Um, I don't happen to think that there was this huge, latent anti-immigrant view in the country. Uh, I think mostly people in the country think that thought before Trump that immigrants in this country were working hard and were making a contribution to the United States. He then rolled down the escalator at Trump Tower and said, the Mexicans are rapists, and by the way, they're not sending their best, right? And then, and everybody who watched that said, that's insane. Somebody making that argument can't possibly be... By the way, when I say everyone, I mean every single Republican in the United States Senate, much less the American people. But what happened after that? You got a bunch of people on Fox News spend 24 hours a day running uh, uh, stories about immigrants, you know, committing crimes in this country. I mean, that's all that was on the news on Fox News for years and years to their everlasting um, shame. So what's the winning message? No, to to their everlasting shame that Republican committees spent billions, millions of dollars on anti-immigrant. The winning message is the 2013 immigration bill that I helped, that I wrote with John McCain and six other senators that had a pathway to citizenship for the 11 million people that are here that are undocumented, that had the most progressive dream act that had ever been passed, that had uh, dealt with our agricultural workers. I wrote those provisions with Dianne Feinstein and Orrin Hatch and, and Marco Rubio, and that had 46 freaking billion dollars of border security in it. I mean, it was not Trump's ineffective medieval wall, but it was 21st century border security that would allow us to literally see every single inch of the border. We doubled the number of border security agents. We had internal border security because 40% of the people that are here that are undocumented are people that overstayed their visas. And we have no capacity as a country to know whether they've stayed or whether they haven't stayed. Every single Democrat in the Senate voted for that. A bunch of Republicans voted for it, too. And the only reason it's not the law of the land is because of the tyranny of the Freedom Caucus. Because in the House, they enforced this thing called the Hastert Rule, named after a guy who's actually in prison, um, to, to insist that unless a majority of the majority voted for it, that they weren't going to allow a vote to go forward. Another way of saying that is 40 people who had the politics of this guy Steve King from Iowa and these other Republicans were able to stop America from doing what we wanted to do on immigration. That is where the public will is, is right where I just described it. What we've got is a politics that's been created by by the Freedom Caucus and by Fox that we're going to have to now overcome. And Trump, this is all for him about holding off office by demonizing the weakest people in, in our society. And that is a well-known tactic by people who occupy the political territory that Donald Trump occupied. There, there were some people looking back at 2016, and there were you know, a lot of things that influenced the outcome of that election, but there were some who voted for Trump or who didn't bother to vote, who heard the message from the Democratic Party and the nominee, Hillary Clinton, and thought it was so much about immigrants and people who were not the white working class voters, that they felt there was nothing in it for them. So how do you, how does the party 
without abandoning one or the other. Uh, you know, I don't. I don't think we have to abandon any of it. I think that we should be the party for opportunity. We should be the party that if you're willing to work hard, we're going to create an economy where you get to share in the benefit of that economy, and your family gets to share in the benefit of that as well. We're going to support an education system that actually drives economic opportunity rather than reinforcing the inequality that we have. But we got to be focused on it. I mean, I have a proposal with Sherrod Brown, for example, called the American Family Act that would triple the child tax credit in America. It would reduce, as I mentioned earlier, childhood poverty by 40%. It would be a great uh, middle-class tax cut for people, and it costs only 3% of what Medicare for all costs. You know, I'd rather not spend the next 10 years losing a battle to take 180 million people's insurance away, taxing the middle class by $33 trillion, which is Bernie's plan. And by the way, those aren't Republican talking points. Those are Bernie's talking points. He's honest about his plan, which others are not. Um, I'd rather take 3% of that and reduce childhood poverty by 40% and see if we can't give an American generation that's coming after us actually a fighting chance to succeed. And I think if we're standing for that kind of stuff as a party, we'll win. But we gotta, we got to stay focused on the economy. It's important. Here's an audience question. I worked for your father at the State Department. Uh, what did you learn for him? Sorry about that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> she says he was a good guy. Yeah. He was. He passed away this year, and I miss him a lot. He was, um, um, the thing that I learned about, learned from him more than anything else was that public service was a noble calling and that we all have a responsibility to this democracy. That is what he believed. That is what animated everything that he did, and that's why I do the work that I do. Mm. Another question here. What's wrong with today's political climate that prevents you from being an obvious front runner to be our next president? <laughs> the, you know, we are it is we are living in a transition moment in the in the economy. And I've wrestled I wrestle in the book and I've wrestled since I wrote the book with the effect of social media on, on our democracy. It, it 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 isn't obvious to me that social media couldn't have been a real positive, that it, that, it, that it couldn't be used to democratize our country and to empower people in, the, in this country. So far from a political point of view, that's not what it's done. It's been a corrosive disaster for the democracy, and it, and it has created a celebrity that I think is deeply um, unhelpful to, to making policy choices for the next generation of Americans. And I've got to, I've got to figure out a way to for my own purposes in this candidacy to contend with that and deal with that. As a country, though, we're going to have to figure this out as well. I put out a book last week that's not this book. It's a, a book called Dividing America. That's a, You can go on my website and find it. Um, How do you have time, time to write all these books? Well, this one is a, actually more of a comic book. It is a collection of the Russian propaganda that was... Uh, delivered all over these social media platforms that Facebook claimed wasn't even there. You can hear the anger in my voice because the lack of responsibility of these guys was just unbelievably profound. Um, but take a look at it. Among other things, you'll find an ad that they put up there on, on Facebook for NASCAR Jesus, which has uh, the NASCAR emblem, Jesus Christ, in front of it holding um, a, a semi-automatic weapon and a can of Mountain Dew in the other hand. Hmm. But it's the kind of thing that, you know, President Trump won't even admit happened to us. And we've got this bipartisan legislation, which we're trying to get to the floor, that McConnell will not allow us to, to, to put on the floor. So I, what I'm, my point is I have to figure out how to contend with it. But I think all of us need to figure out how to contend with it. I, I write in the book that I, 
I take it as a um, duty and a responsibility as a, uh, an elected official in this country to take in the vitriol that comes through my Facebook page. And I, and I don't complain about it, but I doubt very much that we're going to solve the next generation's problems along the lines of the way that conversation is happening. You know, part of the argument of this book is we are much better when we are face-to-face having a conversation in, in this democracy. You know, the founders, to go back to them for a second, they had no expectation that we would agree with each other. It was the reverse. Their view was that in a free society, as such as it was, because it wasn't free for everybody, but in, a, in, a, in, a, in what they called a republic, that one of the great virtues of being in one is that you, you got to have your own opinion which meant that not that we would agree with each other, but that we would profoundly disagree with each other. But what they believed as Enlightenment thinkers was out of those disagreements, we would fashion more durable and more imaginative solutions than any king or tyrant could come up with on their own. That is why our system is designed the way it is. That's what the Senate is about. That's what the House is about. That's what the independent judiciary is about. The executive, that's what it's about. And we have completely lost our ability to do that in our national politics. Completely lost it. And it is not what the cable television discussion is about, which every night for three hours a night asks no sacrifice of anybody in America except for the three hours that you spend watching it. Uh, But it's an endless partisan loop that just runs over and over and over again, promising no progress and actually asking for no progress. And the social media stuff is a reverberation of that, which means that today in Washington, there are like, I would say, 11 or 12 million people who are the people that watch that stuff and, and deal with social media, you know, deal with their politics through Twitter, who are really well represented in Washington. Their equities are deeply represented in D.C. and the dysfunction of D.C. My worry is with the 320 million Americans who are just trying to raise their family, who are just trying to build their small business, who just are trying to do something right in their community, and who have an expectation that people that have the privilege to be in a job like my job are actually doing that job. And today they're not. What sacrifice would you like to see Americans make? What, what, what are you asking Americans to sacrifice if you're doing that at all out on the campaign trail? Well, I think, you know, on, 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 on the fiscal stuff we talked about earlier, we're at a point in this country where we're spending, we're, we're collecting 16% of our GDP and revenue, and we're spending 22%. I mean, that's not sustainable. That's created this massive deficit, and much of it is Trump. The, you know, since 2001, we have um, cut taxes by $5 trillion. In fact, the right way of saying that is we have borrowed $5 trillion from the Chinese for the privilege of cutting taxes for rich people in America. We've spent, we've borrowed $5.6 trillion from the Chinese to fight wars in the Middle East. And I think we need to stop doing that. And part of what we're going to have to do is start paying our own way and that is going to require some sense. But besides raising you know, the tax uh, rate on the wealthy, like what, what, what are you asking average Americans to sacrifice? Like what, what would that look like? Well, I think, we, I think we need to invest in education again in this country, and that everybody's going to have to pay for that. We're all going to have to pay for that. I mean, we are running our system of education 
80% or 90% of what we spend, if you're in a good district, is spent on teacher salaries. And the whole system of the way we pay teachers uh, was designed when we had a labor market that discriminated against women and said, you've got two professional choices. One's being a teacher and one's being a nurse. And if you don't want to come be a nurse, you can come teach Julius Caesar every year for 30 years of your life in the San Francisco public schools. And we're going to pay you this ridiculously low wage that no one else in your college class would ever accept for their labor. But if you stick with us for 30 years, we'll give you a pension that's, you know, that'll allow you to retire because your spouse has died. And that'll sound pretty good. That package made sense 50 years ago. It makes no sense today. And in order to pay for what our teachers are actually worth, we're all going to have to pay more to do that. We're just going to have to do it. You, uh, you, you talked about social media. Um, there seems to be something of a bipartisan I don't know if consensus might be too strong a word, but support for more regulation of tech. Uh, Elizabeth Warren is yep. calling for breaking up big tech. In fact, she put up a big billboard here during the California Democratic Party convention saying break up big tech. Uh, what do you think of that idea? Or have they gotten too big? I think it's very worrisome. Uh, and I, I wouldn't say what Elizabeth has said because every single one of these companies is different. But I do believe that the Department of Justice should open a, uh, an investigation of all of them, an antitrust investigation. And there's good reason why. If you look at, even before you get, by the way, to the Russians, and even if, before you get to the corrosive role that um, these platforms are playing extending white nationalist and white supremacy stuff throughout our democracy, which, you know, they don't have to do. It's not they're not the government. There's not a First Amendment issue here uh, as a constitutional matter. But if you look at the profits of publicly traded companies in this country, their profits on invested capital, Throughout our history, you see four lines. These are the most profitable. This is the audiovisual portion of the presentation. <laughs> These are the most profitable companies. These are the next most profitable, and so on. And for history, all those lines have gone like that. And it makes perfect sense, because if all of a sudden you start to earn a higher profit, somebody else comes and competes that profit down. That's the way capitalism is supposed to work. Since 1995, here's what those lines look like. Or no, up till 1995, that's what they look like. And in 1995, that's what they look like. And this profit is all the big tech companies and the pharmaceutical companies in America. And to me, that suggests that there is no way to compete down uh, the profits that they're, that they're earning. And so that's a difficult challenge. And the other challenge is antitrust law typically has looked at, you know, asked the question about harm to the consumer. And I think in the world today, that's probably not a broad enough de definition. We probably need to look at something that's a lot broader than that to consider the effect of, you know, as Scott Galloway has said about Amazon, you know, a company never expected to earn a profit, but still with the market cap that they have, able to buy a grocery store chain, Whole Foods, the eighth largest grocery store chain in the country, and everybody else's market cap drops 20% in the grocery industry. And the people in the industry have to make a profit. Not much of one. It's like 2%. Mm. So I do think, I mean, I think that people are concerned about it from an antitrust perspective. I think the bipartisan concern arises from seeing the damage that's being done to our public conversation 
um, on these social media platforms. And is there a role for government there? And I think, you know, what I'd love to see would be for them to take action themselves. But I think that if they're unwilling to do it, I think there is a role for government there. Yeah. Yeah. This morning at the DNC, Nancy Pelosi spoke and she said, you can't turn on your TV and watch somebody cut someone else's head off. You can turn on any of these you, you know, you can log on to any of this stuff and your kids can watch somebody chopping somebody's head off. I mean, they shouldn't be able to do that. Um, Pelosi this morning at the DNC said that uh, Trump is not taking the Russian you know, effort to undermine the election seriously and that that's a violation of the Constitution. He's violating. Yeah. Um, where, where do you stand on the whole idea of whether or not he should be impeached, whether there should be an impeachment inquiry. I mean, I real some people say, look, there's an election. Let's settle it that way. Uh, others say, no, we, you know, Congress, the House needs to do, has yeah. an oversight function. Yeah. So I think that first, she probably meant that he's violating his oath of office and therefore violating the Constitution would be my guess. And I think she's right about that. I mean, this is one of the list. I've got a list of 10,000 things where I say to myself, man, if Barack Obama had done that, he'd be gone. And, and just in the last week, you know, saying I'm king of Israel, Barack Obama would be gone. I'm buying Greenland, Barack Obama would be gone. Seriously. He got in I mean, trouble for wearing a tan suit. He got in trouble for wearing a tan suit. You're disrespecting America. And, and this guy can't bring himself when he's standing next to Vladimir Putin in Helsinki to say, I believe my intelligence agencies, not you, former head of the KGB. That's our president. And so, I, look, the guy is a menace. And uh, he is an absolute menace. And, and, but I, I believe that the way he's going to n- no longer be there is that we're going to beat him. I believe it. And I think that, or that is what we have to do. We can't take that for granted. Um, I have no trouble with there being an impeachment inquiry in the House, I believe he's committed impeachable offenses. What I have a problem with are people who say, just do your duty. It, you know, it doesn't matter whether he benefits from it or not. I think that's a terrible mistake. We, we have a moral responsibility, and I would say a democratic, small d democratic responsibility for this person to be a one-term president in this country. And that is what our focus should be. And however it is, you know, whatever it is we need to do to do that, that's what we need to do. It doesn't it though, if the House does not impeach him, given all the things you've said uh, and other things, uh, doesn't it give the next president or another president down the road? It does. Look, our, our government is broken right now. We are setting bad precedents every day. There's a, there's a story in the book that's one of the saddest stories I know, which is about um, the, what's happened to the judges over the last 10 years. And that's a story of Mitch McConnell being relentlessly strategic about what he was doing, our not being relentlessly strategic about what he was I'm not saying you, I'm saying our not being uh, relentlessly strategic. But at the middle of that is something that even... even the, uh, you know, I can't chalk up the strategy. I can only chalk it up to malevolence is what he did with Merrick Garland. Yeah. Now, if you if if that's where we're going to be, can I do I, maybe there's not time to read something. For, I don't know if there is time to read. There's that, see that a number there? five. You got five minutes. Here, but don't read, read five, five minutes. Don't no, do I'll read you one minute. Do you want one minute? Yeah. Here, I'll read you one minute. I wasn't planning on reading this, but I will just to show you because there's this tendency to think, you know, uh, 
that we've never been here before, and there's a tendency to think what we do isn't that important. The founders read Thucydides. They knew that once factions sever the bonds of trust embodied in laws, norms, and traditions, once every disagreement becomes irreconcilable and we pursue the good of our party with complete disregard for the good of our country, when we treat politics as a tribal war, distorting the obligations of elected officials and leaders, we lose the ability to do any, we lose the ability to do anything worthy of our roles. Indeed, we lose the ability to reason and even converse. Consider the similarity of the content of our social media feeds and cable television repartee to political attitudes during the Peloponnesian War as described by Thucydides. Reckless audacity came to be considered the courage of a loyal ally. Prudent hesitation, specious cowardice. Moderation was held to be a cloak for unmanliness. Ability to see all sides of a question, inaptness to act on many. Once we consider our fellow citizens to be enemies, we invite the endless cycle of blame, escalation, and retaliation that can destroy Republican government. This mentality has damaged our ability to do anything of consequence, including tackling our debt and dealing with our immigration system. This is why I say, my fellow citizens, we cannot follow Mitch McConnell down into this one-way ratchet of destroying our institutions because... The the destruction of those institutions is tantamount to destroying this exercise in self-government. The book has a a fairly dystopian view, I think, of of certainly of government right now. Uh, What gives you hope, either now that you've been out there running for president, you've uh, obviously been in public life now for quite some time, uh, what gives you hope? The the book ends in a very hopeful, young people give me hope, the book ends in a very, very hopeful message about what we all need to do in our, uh, in our responsibility. And, you know, we are at a time of profound um, uh, uh, wreckage you know, in, our, in, our, in, in this exercise of self-government. But I fell completely in love with our democracy writing this book, completely in love with the idea of what it means to humanity for the United States of America to pursue however imperfectly we have pursued it this exercise in pluralism and this exercise in self-government. And to go back to your dad and to my mom, you know, this is something that generations and generations and generations of dispossessed and powerless people all around the world have counted on. And at a moment when China is rising the way China is rising and exporting its surveillance state throughout the planet, we have an important role to play as Americans, but, but we're not going to be able to do that if we're at each other's throats over empty partisan stuff. You know, as Lincoln said, in much harder times than we're living through right now, incomparably hard, as he reminded us over and over again, we must be friends, we cannot be enemies. And that's what it means to be, I think, a citizen who's committed to the republic in which they live. All right. Well, on that note, please give a big hand of applause Thank to presidential candidate Michael Bennett. Thanks. Land of Flickering Lights is the name of the book. I'm Scott Schaefer on behalf of Senator Bennett and myself. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, everybody. Thanks.